With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the show, and thank you for tuning in. I am your host, He Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, and the founder and CEO of Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing the basic necessities of life to underprivileged children. I'm also a board-certified integrated holistic health energy and sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where Energy Awareness Radio streams to you live each and every week. Energy Awareness Radio is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. Audible.com has more than 425,000 audio books and spoken word audio products to choose from, so you can listen whenever and wherever you want. Just download the title you prefer, free of charge, and start listening when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. That's audibletrial.com slash energyawareness. My guest is Dr. Kenneth Doka, a professor of counseling and a leading authority on issues involving death, dying, and grief. He has edited or written over 35 acclaimed books on death-related subjects. Additionally, Dr. Doka was president and chair of the Association for Death Education and Counseling, as well as the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement. He's a senior consultant and speaker for the Hospice Foundation of America and was honored with the Herman Feifel Award and the rarely presented Special Contributions to the Field Award from the Association for Death Education and Counseling. And today, Dr. Doka is here to discuss his new book, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End. Welcome to the show, Dr. Doka. Thank you for taking time to join us here at Energy Awareness Radio. How are you being? I am being very, I'm being well, and I, I thank you. I'm, I'm also feeling very honored and delighted to be on your show. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, you're quite welcome. We're honored to have you here. I will say that I found your book to be very, oh, my gosh, it's it's filled with empathy and compassion, and it's done in such a way to bring solace to people, the, the comfort that is there that can help so very many people, even though we know we can't really prepare for anything ahead of time. It's very difficult no matter the situation. It, it does do some good to know that this book is available to bring you the comfort you need to help you through these times. But before we get to your book, I'd like to start with a bit about you. Thanatology, sure. the study of death and dying. What was it that drew you to that work? Well, again, I think like many things in life, it was an accident. Um, when I was uh, in my 20s, I was in graduate school studying counseling and studying for Lutheran ministry, and I had to do what was called the clinical pastoral education experience. And my sociological interest at the time was um, was in juvenile delinquency, and I found the perfect um, – the perfect setting for my clinical uh, pastoral education experience. It was at Spofford Center. Uh, Spofford Center was where New York City used to hold its its delinquents, who for reasons either by the nature of the crime or by the nature of the family, uh, couldn't be released into the public. Um, So they were were held at Spofford until their trial. Um, And it was, you know, for somebody who was interested in delinquency, it was the, how can you say it, the creme de creme of delinquents, you know, Uh, Mm. uh, Yep. And um, and, I, and I was really happy to go there. Uh, about a week before I was supposed to start my internship, and, and I was in St. Louis. I was coming to New York. 
um, I received a letter from my supervisor. Um, and at first I didn't even think much about it because I, I was studying for finals and getting final papers. And I thought it was going to be one of these letters when he opened it up. It was going to say, on such and such a date, come to this office, bring this with you, uh, be prepared, you know, the kinds of things you would expect uh, in entry mm-hmm. to, a, to an internship. Uh, instead, the letter devastated me. It said, guess what? Uh, I'm no longer at Sloan, uh, no longer at, at Spofford Center. I'm now at Sloan Kettering, which is a major cancer hospital in New York. And you can follow mm-hmm. me there or be released from your obligation. Since I had, you know, kind of organized my educational program around taking um, t- taking the CPE this summer, I, it really wasn't a choice not to do it. So I, I ultimately said, okay, I'm, uh, I'm disappointed. It's not the internship I wanted. It's not the internship I expected. I didn't say that to my supervisor, but to myself. Mm. But I'll just have to do it. I'll have to make make it work. Um, and when I got and when I was going out to to Saint, uh, from St. Louis to New York, I think I was thinking, well, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, I've done a lot of work with children and adolescents. This will give me a chance to work with adults. Um, and when I got out there, the first thing they did is looking at my background. Uh, they put me in with the children's pediatric and adolescent wards. And, of course, Sloan Kettering mm-hmm. deals with the most serious cancers. So um, mm-hmm. so I ended up um, working with dying children, essentially. And it really turned out to be uh, a life-changing experience for me. Um, uh, I really became interested in the field of uh, the new field of thanatology. It was just really beginning then. Uh, some of the first work was being written at that time. Um, and uh, how did I know it would become the focus of my life for the next 50 years? Yeah, you didn't. It was a surprise to you. <laughs> but thankfully, you did. <laughs> well, you're yeah, the best uh, that is, right? Yep. Yeah, you, yeah, best laid plans. You just never know what's going to happen, how circumstances are going to change, and we're pointed in a direction that we didn't think we were going to take. Now, your book, as I said, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End, is, is really fascinating. There's so much in it. You've covered so many different topics surrounding death, like premonitions of death, near-death experiences, messages and mediums, ghosts, apparitions, you name it. It's the full gamut. What was the catalyst to you actually writing this book? Well, um, over the years, um, naturally, you know, and, and I know you've done some work in this area yourself, you, ex- you, you have so many experiences. And, um, and as I looked at the literature to try to make sense of those experiences, um, a, a lot of very good literature was, was written by a number of the people who I cite and quote in the book, but most of them were strong advocates, um, you know, uh, and, and then the other set are, are what I call the debunkers, the people who said, you know, this, this can be explained scientifically, this doesn't show anything, this doesn't make anything. And I thought I really wanted to write a book that just um, explored the topics and that just presented evidence and let the reader kind of decide, what do I make of this? Um, I wanted it to be fair. I wanted it to be even-handed. Um, so when we talk about, you know, well, let's say something like near-death experiences, what are some of the, the you know, the, the explanations that are given for it uh, around all the circuits? So I, I wanted people to have um, a book that, that I thought fairly and even-handedly looked at these kinds of phenomena and said, make your own decision. You know, and that was one of the interesting things about the book is there are so many things in it that I could relate to that I've seen because I have done 
you know, pediatric yeah. hospice work for, for about, I don't know, 10 years with children. Um, well, that's pediatric, yeah. <laughs> they, they seem to have no fear of death at all. They really don't. The children I worked with knew exactly what was happening, and they, I guess, probably going to sound odd to say, but there was a sense of safety for them or, okay, maybe a better word is a, a, a sense of peace. That, yeah, I think that's better. I had one little boy tell me he was going to go see Jesus. And he asked me if I wanted to tell him anything. And I was, I have to tell you, I was completely gobsmacked. All I could say was, okay, tell him I said, hi, and thank you. And he said, okay. And, you know, this child truly blew me away. And I wonder if it's because children in their innocence, perhaps they haven't learned what it means to die, and they're therefore less inclined to have a fear of death. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it varies. I mean, um, I, I saw some of that with, with, with the children that I dealt with at Phone Kettering, and since then, um, some of the others were a little bit more anxious or a little bit more worried. Um, but but I think, you know, as long as they felt safe with their family and with their physicians, um, they, they did often approach death with a certain sense of peace that you don't always find. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I remember one mother telling me that her um, – her child, you know, in a, in a moment, he knew he was dying. He was about uh, nine years old and, and had leukemia. And, and remember, and, and 50 years ago, leukemia was a death sentence. It's not now, happily, but in those days yeah. it was. Um, and, um, and, he, and he said, Mom, what's it like to die? And, um, and she told him the story. You know, she, it, was, it was a family story that he was like three weeks late and that he didn't want to leave Mommy's womb, you know, uh, he was too yep. comfortable. You to, that was like a family story that went on. And she started and she said, well, do you remember when you, when you were a baby and you didn't want to be born, you really were comfortable in, in, in mommy's tummy? And he smiled and laughed at that and said, yeah. She said, well, would you like to go back now? And he really was you know, disgusted by that idea. Ah, no, of course not. No. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I think when you go to the other side, it's going to be the same way. You're going to, you don't have any, you know, you, you, you're, you're going to say, I don't want to go back anymore. I thought that was a beautiful way of explaining mm. to a child. That was a good mom. That was a really strong, yeah, very good yeah. mom to, to be able to have that strength to do that. This is your child, you know, it's, it's, yeah, very much yeah. So. wow. Yeah, there was a lot of things that happened in hospice that amaze you, and people would always say, well, don't you cry all the time? I cried on the way home. I never cried in front of the children except for one child I was reading a story to, and um, her parents weren't in the room. I had told the nurse to call them back, and they had asked why. They said, no, the kid's nowhere near, you know, transitioning. I said, yeah, she is. You, you need to trust me on this. And so one of the nurses knew me, and she called the parents back, and um, I was reading a was the night before Christmas. It was around Christmas time. And I could, I, I learned how to detach early on, just to detach while you're there so that you didn't cry in front of people because you're supposed yeah. to be the strong one. And quite frankly, I was always there more to be with the family than, than the child, even though you were with the child, you were there for the family. But the little girl, I, I, I could feel a tear fell. And I thought, oh no. And it landed on her bare arm. And I'm like, please don't let her have felt it. And she looked up at me and she said, it's okay. And I looked at her and I just smiled and I kept reading. And, and in my head, I was thinking, it's not. And then every swear word I knew, okay, it's, it's not okay. It's not every swear I know, okay, no way in God's green earth is this okay. It was, just, it was really hard. But there, you know, she just really, 
she's a little girl and she just, she just was accepting what was happening, but you know, she was like three, so she didn't really know what was going on too much. Um, but yeah, that's, there's so many different things we can all relate to. And so to me, there was a lot of things relatable in the book and things I've seen and done that, that were relatable and comforting. But the, the thing that I noticed was when you wrote about the NDEs, which are near death experiences, for those of you who aren't familiar with that um, abbreviation, there are a lot of common scenarios around them. Or so I thought until I read your book, I was not aware that different cultures actually experience different scenarios around that. So I was wondering if you would expound on that. Oh, yeah. There's, there's been a number of people who have done uh, – Sushan uh, is one of them, and, and Kelleher is another. And, you know, and every, uh, these, the couple of things about near-death experiences, we have this sort of uh, image of this tunnel of light, you know, which seems to be relatively common on, by Westerners, but um, – but in other cultures, it's 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 different experiences. Um, so, for instance, in the um, in the Pacific Islanders, uh, people will describe situations like being in a uh, one person described um, seeing someone who he recognized as as an ancient relative of his. Uh, couldn't describe how he recognized it, but he was on a canoe with he and the, and the person motioned for him to get on the canoe. As, as he was uh, coming back from a drowning, and uh, and they're going out on this lagoon. It's very peaceful, and they're going into a foggy spot, and he's very much at peace with himself in in this story, uh, as he told it later. Um, but then um, the person said, "No, we we have to go back. It's it's not time for you yet." Um, and 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 so that was the kind of canoe stories. And other people sometimes don't have pleasant experiences. Um, there was, you know, there, I, one of the stories I, I told was a client of mine who was, uh, in his younger years, was um, was a, 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 a drug user, and um, he tells the experience of, of falling down into the seemingly endless pit, and gargoyle-like characters coming out of the walls and saying, "You've you've gone too far, you've gone too far," uh, and you know, the experience was frightening enough for him that it, he really never used drugs again. Wow. Well, that was good, though. Maybe that was the reason that was, for that was it. Good, yeah, but it was a terrifying experience for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad, because now this poor person is going to be totally frightened of death. <laughs> well, I, you know, he's, you know? Um, I, I haven't followed him. He's probably around 50 now, but hopefully he's reached some perspective. Yeah, and, you know, even though – you can read a lot and you can think that you can prepare and, and you might know a lot of people who have passed and, and things like that. And even though I know that, you know, the two things in life we can't avoid are death and taxes. And, and I believe we do go on, our spirit moves on. And I know I've read many accounts in your book and elsewhere of NDEs and, and I believe in the afterlife. I have heard from many who have passed and I know they're around me. And even with all of that, there's still a fear of the unknown, and death is indeed a very scary proposition. Why is that with all that we know? When we, you know, we believe in this forever, we have a sense of foreverness that we believe in, and yet there's a fear of actually going there, even though people have gone and come back and told us things. Why do you think uh, there's still yeah. that fear? Well, Ernst Becker once said that we, 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 as humans, we live in a particular paradox in that we have the minds of angels, he said, and the bodies of worms. 
Um, mm. And what he means by that is that there's, a, you know, as we we think in a transcendental way, we 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 think of forever. We can envision our life spirit ever ending, and and that's a very strong feeling that most of us have, right? But on the other hand, yes. we we are knowledgeable enough to know that people die, so we we struggle mm-hmm. with this paradox and. Um, and then, you know, and then I think when we look at the fears of, you know, we sometimes talk, talk about fears of death, but really those fears can be uh, fears of the afterlife, you know, uh, fears of the unknown, um, fears of the dying process, fears about people left behind. Um, so there's lots of different ways that people fear death. Um, and, you know, when I work with clients, we really have to get to the root of what they're really afraid of. And then sometimes we can bring comfort and support to that. Yes. You know, like in hospice, because you know, many could... yes. are fearful of pain. And, you know, and, and in most cases, um, with good hospice care and with, um, how can we say this, um, not waiting to the last minute hospice care, um, we can usually control pain at the end of life. Right. Yeah, that is possible today in a much better yeah. way than it was even 20 years ago. Yes. Oh, very definitely. Yeah. And yes. I mean, it changes all the time, you know. And and well, I live in New Jersey, where the Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice is, and so a lot of it started with that in the '70s, I think it was. So I'm like three miles probably from the Karen Ann Hospice, Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice, and um, you know, that it's Julia. It, it, I met some of the staff there. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And, and um, Julia still is involved. You know, she's 93, I think, or four this year. And her son, John, I know him. He's a friend. Um, oh, really? <laughs> Isn't she yeah, great? Yeah. I love Julia. <laughs> she's very, very, very lovely. And for such a tiny, tiny, she's tiny. And she's so strong in all that she did to, to, you know, bring the world hospice and and to really present it well. It was, I think, the first case that that came up and and did allow for hospice to happen the way that it didn't being the result that it is. They're doing very well, by the way. Um, But, you know, I don't know the last time you spoke to her or anything. They're doing very well, even through COVID and everything there, you know. Yeah. Um, I, and you know, it's funny when I was reading the book, I thought, I bet he knows the Quinlans. <laughs> well, not and well, but I, I think they I do. Know. Yeah. And I think they do a really good job with their hospice. I really do. I don't know that there is any way to feel better about death. And I mean, we each have our beliefs that we go to for comfort in times of need, spiritual, religious, whatever it is, but I'm not sure if there's a way to look upon death with more of, let's say, an open mind. I'm sorry, I'm not articulating well here. Do, do you have any thoughts on how to not be so fearful, but rather somewhat, and eh, this isn't a good word either, embrace the inevitability of death? I mean, we're all going to do it. Everybody's going to yeah. jump off the boat, you know. So, <laughs> But how do we embrace that better? And, and not in a way that, hey, I can't wait, but in a way that it's okay, if you yeah. will. And I, and I think the key is to um, to me it's it, it's um, well let me say a couple of things on that. that's a really good question and and to me I think um, the key is um, that we will embrace it in different ways depending on who we are um, and mm-hmm. you know and and I think part of that to embrace it well or to embrace it better 
may be just to, you know, to look to what you believe and what you have seen and what you have understood um, and, and your core beliefs about the nature of life and death and say, what strength can I get from them? I think the other thing is, we, you know, I, I used to have a professor, Constantina um, Sevilius Rothschild, uh, when I was at, uh, at Wayne State for a year in graduate school, and she had this mm-hmm. – uh, she had this Eastern accent, you know, uh, Eastern European accent, um, and she once looked at the class and say, uh, said, I, I can tell each of you how you're going to die. And, you know, oh, no. with that <laughs> accent, it sounded pretty official. Um, yeah. But she did, you know, and, and, and her point was, you're going to die the way you live. And if you're frightened of everything in life, you're going to be frightened by death. If, if you're an anxious person in life, you're going to be anxious in death. If you're a person who's angry, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna go um, cursing and uh, and swearing into the afterlife. If you're, um, you know, you 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 die the way you live. My my uh, my father used to always quote Woody Allen. Uh, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's basically how he died. Um, he he, you know, he knew he was dying, but he tended to ignore it. Um, and and I think in his own way died very peacefully. Mhm. Yeah, and so, I think we've all seen that. Yeah, look at your life, and you know, um, if there are changes you need to make in your life, um, make them before you die. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in this field fifty hmm. years, and the two things I've learned most importantly are um, the two most important life lessons I've learned in, in the field are first of all, uh, you know. Um, Try not to leave too much unfinished business. Um, I right. tell my son every phone call that I have with him every time I see him, hey, I love you, kid, you know, and, and he says the same, you know. Um, at least when he dies, that won't be an issue. And and the second thing is, you know, live each day as if it's your last. Don't don't keep, you know, don't be the person who says, uh, once I retire, I'm going to vacation, I'm going to do everything I want. Meanwhile, I'm just going to sit here in my in my room and watch television, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you died today, would would it be okay? Yeah, yeah, and that's the. I think that's the best question. You know, is if you die today, would everything be okay for those that you're leaving behind, and yeah. and what your life's work was? And if you can say yes to that, you know, and it's hard because some deaths are so totally unexpected when a young parent leaves this sure. world and leaves you know, children and, and the and the spouse behind. And we've seen that with COVID. We've seen that with shootings. We've seen that in all kinds of areas. And it's difficult. But as you get older, I think you kind of realize you need to do things to make sure that there's less unfinished business, particularly, and I'll say this, and, and I'll probably get emails. Please don't email me, people. <laughs> but particularly women. I had a friend who we were having a discussion in November of a particular year, and uh, we were talking about how things were set up in each person's household. There were four women talking, me and three others. And I said, don't you guys know, you know, life insurance policies and stuff like that? I mean, what if something happens? You really need to be aware. Oh, well, they're taking care of it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to be aware of what's happening in your marriage, with your family, with your children and everything. Three months later, this woman who's, who was, she was an accountant, is an accountant. Her husband passed away and she didn't have a clue. She had a clue about nothing. And she went to one of the other women that was talking that evening and she said, you know, T was telling us that and she was right and I didn't, I didn't pay attention and now it's biting me in the butt. Can you ask T if she'll help me? And so 
this other friend called and said, Nancy wants to know if you'll help her. And I said, of course I'll help her. What does she want? So I was helping her with her paperwork. But before I did, I said to her, do you really want me to help you with this? Because this is going to get personal. And maybe you don't want me to know. You know, you might not want me to, to help you with your personal finances. And she said, I don't care. I can't do it. And I think everybody needs to take a lesson from that and say, you don't have to have everything absolutely in order, but you have to know what to do. You have to yeah. know what you need to do. And if you don't know that, then that's on you and it's going to be harder. And each spouse needs to know that. And if there's one spouse, then somebody else, a brother, a sister, a friend needs to know what to do in case of your passing. Um, you know, that that's probably the only way in which we can prepare because the, the other parts of it, you just don't know. You know, and the emotions that come in, you can't handle things when you're that emotional. I don't think people are, are good at doing that. They need the support and the help. And I find that your book provides an awful lot of support in ways that friends can't give. You can help with financing. You can help with go th going through billing and seeing what they have for, you know, life insurance and all these other things. But the support that your book offers is greater than that. And that's what I like so much is that you really speak to the people's heart. And it's not just the person who's who's transitioning, but it's the family, but it's also the friends of the family and how we can all support and help each other. So this was really, it is a very well-written book and, a, and it's a resource guide. That's how I kind of look at it. Have you been told that? Thank you. What's that? And have you been told that, that it is a resource guide that people no, look to for help way, with? But, uh, no one's ever said that. So thank you very much for that. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I guess it is. Yeah, it, it very much is. It's a, you know, it, it, I think it's, um, I just think it's one of those things that's really something that needs to be read by, uh, by everybody, you know, because we're all going to pass and we're all going to know people who are going to pass and, and it's a good way to help. You got into some other areas as well, uh, like ghosts and apparitions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because there's so many mixed feelings around that and what causes that, if there is a cause, if there really ghosts and apparitions, if it's chemicals in the brain and all similar to NDEs. So why don't you, if you would, expound on that a little bit. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's first of all interesting to know, you know, you look at the first literature of humankind and, and among those is the Gilgamesh epic and, you know, and, and ghosts and aberrations are, are part of that. So we know that from the very beginnings of, of history, uh, people have recounted stories of ghosts. Um, we see that we see that in the Bible, where you know where um, uh, Saul c consults the witch at Endor to uh, to access the ghost of his former patron Samuel. Um, we, you know, we see it in Shakespeare, uh, where ghosts very prominently play roles in a number of his plays, most, most uh, expressively, of course, Hamlet um, among them. So, you know, so we've had a, a – and how many of us haven't as kids, you know, sat around a campfire or a, a fireplace – and you know, and love to be scared by ghost stories and and read cartoons mm -hmm. or movies. Um, you know what they are um, and and what they mean is um, is open to conjecture. Uh, you know, we uh, I tell the story of, of my family where we talk about the ghost of grandma in the basement, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, and we've. Uh, we sort of, you know, I, I think we sort of half believe that we've lived in this house for five generations. My grandmother died in the basement, and you know, and we, um, and people at times have have said they, 
they felt her presence. Uh, when when my niece was very little, um, you know, we the it's a, it's a two family house in in Astoria, New York, um, and um, and when my niece was my sister lived upstairs from us. And the basement was where we had the washing machine. And when my niece was very little, my uh, my uh, my niece and my goddaughter Christine, uh, she was like one and a half, two years old. She had brought her down here as, as she was doing the uh, the uh, the laundry. My sister was doing the laundry, and she talks about the fact that Christine seemed to be having this very engaging conversation with someone in, in another direction from my from my sister. Um, you know, you, she was too young to verbalize that, but she seemed to be very happy talking to this person. You know, now, yeah, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's, um, you know, is there really a ghost? Well, you know, if there was a way to find out, I think I'd pay for it. Um, I that, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know that I'd be surprised at either result. Um, as I said, even my son once when he uh, had his stuff there as uh, as a young working person, um you know, when he was before he got his apartment, he lived at my mother's house for a while and kept some of his materials in in, in the basement. Um, you know, he would talk about feeling a presence uh, at times, and and he said, you know, um, he was dating his wife at the time, and he said, don't don't tell my wife because she'll get, um, you know, she she won't go down there anymore, you know, and um, she'll and, get spooked. Uh, <laughs> get spooked, yeah. She she she's very suspicious. Yeah. And when we finally told her after, you know, they had had their own house and they were, you know, they had moved out of that that apartment, you know, um, he, uh, she said, you know, I always felt something strange in the basement. So, you know, it was, a, it was kind of an interesting story. Now, again, it might just be for, we know very little about my grandmother. Um, we know it was, uh, it was, you know, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather had come from Hungary. We knew that he... Um, that the woman he was engaged to had uh, had decided not to join him, and the family found somebody else. We think she struggled with depression most of her life. So, you know, one of the roles that this story plays is it, it gives her a, a sense of being to us, you know, as this mm-hmm. benevolent spirit in the in the basement. Now, if it is true, we don't know what's going to happen when strangers eventually buy the house, uh, if the, if it ever leads to that. <laughs> But I'm not taking I think it's true. My vote is it's true. I, I'm voting you know, for it's it, real. <laughs> my my vote too is that uh, you know it's um, it's certainly been experienced by lots of people in lots of different situations. So um, mm-hmm. you know, and again, um, I can't dismiss it. Uh, no. You know, I I probably would think I wouldn't be surprised if they found it <laughs> if we had some way. Yeah. Of it wouldn't shock me in the least. I, I, you know, children are so perceptive. They can mm-hmm. really feel things and see things and do things. And I work with kids a lot. And I've had people in my treatment room, and I'll be <laughs> working on them. And there was one little girl, and she kept saying, Nana, Nana. And now I knew that Nana in Italian is grandmother. And um, so I looked over and, you know, where she was looking, and I just kept working on her. And then the mother said, okay, well, what do you think? And I said, well, her energy is really good. You know, I think she's, I can't, I'm not a diagnostician. I can't say anything like that. And the child kept saying, Nana, Nana. And I said, yeah, I know she was here. She was here. And the mother said, what do you mean? And she said, that's her grandmother. Her grandmother passed away. And I said, I know. And she said, um, she goes, she keeps calling for her and she keeps looking over there. I said, because she was standing there. And she goes, you saw her? I said, yeah. <laughs> she goes, you saw her? I said, yeah, I, I sometimes see things. <laughs> and I thought this woman's going to 
put me away. She's just going to cart me away. But she didn't because the child did, and I know I've seen and felt things, and other people have as well. And I've had people say to me, you know, if I get sick, can I come here? And it's like, no, you can't because I work out of my home. You know, no, you can't move in with me. Uh, yeah. You know, but I know that there are – there are presences around. I really think if we put on a pair of glasses like they do in the movies to make things 3D, we would see that this planet is overly populated with people who have passed because they're here watching over us all the time. And so many people who are really good mediums and psychics, and you talk about that in your book as well, there are some out there that are just phenomenal. And they, I've had people tell me things that no one else would know. There's no way on God's green earth anyone else could know what they were telling me. And it's just, you know, it's, everything's energy, right? So if it's all energy and you can't kill energy, you can't diffuse it, you can only transform it, well, then why not? Why not? Why can't we just be humans and the, and the spirit leave the body and the, the spirit stays and the body just decays and, and there you go, you're still around? A lot of people find that frightening. I find it kind of comforting. So that's why I want to vote for, you know, she's in the basement because I think okay. it's comforting. <laughs> yeah, and I think for us it has been too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or at least it's a source of family stories. Yeah, you know, and you know, and for somebody who married into the family and didn't have any idea at the time and said, you know, I always felt something, there you go, you know. I mean, she felt something too, and she didn't know. So she had nothing to be influenced by. She just said, wow, okay, yeah, you know what? And she was probably being very honest and very almost like, that's really weird, you know, but not – you know, could there be, um, you know, not everybody's Casper the Friendly Ghost, I guess? Maybe. Yeah. I haven't run into any. I don't want to. And, and you just say, no, the only God-like entity is allowed in my house. And, and I've talked to a couple of people who are priests, you know, who are like, yeah, no, we believe in that. And I'm like, really? Because I'm surprised that you do. And they're like, no, we absolutely do. And I thought, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's kind of cool. So I think that there is something to be said for it and I find comfort in it I know other people are kind of afraid of it but it doesn't scare me you know it, and I know that I had a person I remember working on a woman she had um, colon cancer and I knew she wasn't going to make it there was no way and she came in for a treatment and she said to me when it was over who were the three people in the corner and I said I'm sorry and she said who were the three people in the corner and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know who they were. And she goes, did you see them? And I said, no, I was busy working on you. Because I didn't want her to feel horrible, but I think that was one of those. She was getting ready to pass, and that's why she was seeing the other side. And yeah. you kind of mentioned that in the, yeah. Oh, yeah, very definitely. Um, you know, we, we called those nearing death, uh, nearing death awareness. Yes. It's researched by, by Maggie Callahan and, and um Oh, uh, Pat Kelly. And, um, you know, and they talk about a number of different ways that people become aware that death is imminent. Um, this is more than a premonition, but this is just this, um, you know, often they'll, um, you'll find somebody sick in bed who starts talking about he has to catch a train or he has to catch a plane. Or mm -hmm. uh, another common manifestation of this they found was was seeing a dead relative. You know, I just was speaking to grandma last night, and you're thinking, grandma's um, grandma's been dead for ten years. You know, or, or the third way is uh, that the Callahan Nan and Kelly felt it is this kind of uh, what you said, this kind of uh, not not just seeing relatives, but just, just sometimes just having a, an awareness of death um, mm -hmm. that. 
uh, like, for example, my father was in hospice care for a number of months and was sort of in a kind of stabilized motion, you know, mode. He had cancer, but, you know, uh, he had, it was right after Thanksgiving, and, uh, and we expected that he was stable and could, could get through the holidays, maybe. And, um, and one day my mother called me. I live about 70 miles north of New York City now. My mother called me and said, I, I think you should come down here. Dad says he feels strange, um, and, and he keeps asking, am I dying? Uh, now, he wasn't asking, do I have a terminal disease that's going to kill me? He knew the answer to that. Um, and I said, what's up, Dad? And, and, and he said, I just, I just feel different. Um, I, I said, are you in pain? He said, no. Are you anxious? He said, well, not really, just, just feeling different. That's all he could describe it as. And so I said, would you like us, you know, would, would you like your kids to come down? You know, we all were coming from different places. And he said, yeah, I think that would be good. And so we all got there, and we, we sat with him, and we reminisced with him. Uh, and about 11 o'clock, he said, I, I feel better. You guys should all go to your bedrooms now and, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and, and just get some sleep. Um, and he died about 2 o'clock that morning. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and my sister always felt bad that we should have stayed with him. You know, my sense was that he needed us there, but he also needed us to be away. Yes. Yeah. I've seen that a lot where the last person in, they're kind of almost like they get a second wind and they're talking and, and everybody thinks everything's okay and goes home and two hours later the phone rings and the person passed. They didn't want, and, and people oftentimes will say, I should have been there, I wanted to be there, and I've said to people, they didn't want you there. They wanted you to yeah. see them at their best. They didn't want you there when they passed. And, and maybe someday you'll get it when it's your turn. I don't know, but that, that's the way it is. They did not want you there. Don't feel bad. You were there during a time when they could speak and be with you and talk to you and, and say the final goodbyes. And, yeah, that happens an awful lot, an awful lot. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen that frequently myself, yeah, yeah. The other and, and thing that happened – go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and it was that opportunity to – you know, and, and that's what I think when you, when, you know, for your listeners, when you hear people talk like that, you know, it's not that they're on too much morphine, but they may be in, in a symbolic way being communicated to and trying to communicate through that same symbolic way to you that the time is short. And this is a good time um, to say anything you need to say, um, to, you know, to have those final conversations, to, to finish what needs to be finished if something needs to be finished. Um, you know, when, when my dad, you know, I was the youngest kid and, and my dad was in his forties when I was growing up. Um, uh, you know, I was a late surprise as he called me. Um, and, um, and so, you know, and, um, and he, and he was at the height of his career and, um, and probably at, you know, the the height of his career and the, you know, as his energy was sapping, you know? Um, so, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, and, and I talked to him. And I said, Dad, you know, um, I said, I want to know how, you know, how much I enjoyed, like, little things that we did together. I said that I didn't appreciate until I had my own son. I said, you know, and I said, remember when you were, I was a little boy, and I used to, we lived in Astoria, New York, so we used to love to go by the East River and watch the boats. Mm-hmm. And I'd wait for him to come home, and if I knew supper was going to be late, I'd run out and say, Dad, you know, supper's going to be late. Can we go and watch the, watch the boats? And he'd say, all right, come on. You know, and he'd get in the car, and we'd drive down mm-hmm. there. Later at night, when he was still smoking, he would go out to get cigarettes, and he'd take me with him, and he'd buy me a chocolate soda and a big pretzel. Uh, 
you know, those, <laughs> those little memories that you remember. But as I said, I didn't appreciate all of those until, you know, I was coming home from work tired and my kid was running out saying, Dad, i got to get sneakers for this or i got to do this or, you know, when you, you really say, I really want to go home and take off my shoes. But you, you went with him and I told him that and he started crying. And he said, I always felt bad that I never took you to a ball game. I said, Dad, I hated to go to ball games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and then I told him a story about when my friends took me to a ball game without telling me it was a Twilight doubleheader when I was about 16. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, the first game went 10 innings. The second game broke records and went 26. Oh, my God. <laughs> Those three um, ball games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he was, you know, and he was laughing at that. And I said, believe me, when I do your eulogy, I'm going to be saying. And he never made me go to a ball game, and 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 and, and, when I, and, it, and it made him made him feel very much at peace, you know. And we all did yeah. that. And, and when you when you have those people, those moments where people are having that that nearing death awareness, use those. Um, Say what you need to say. Even simple, I love you and I miss you or I'll miss you, I forgive you or please forgive me. Whatever those messages are, yep. this is a good time to say them. It is. And I remember one hospice person that I was working with, her husband was in the room and she kept saying to him, I really want, I think it was ice cream, some kind of ice cream. And he could only get it at this one place that was like a half hour away. And she said, please go get it for me. Please go get it for me. And I was like, all right, fine. She wants the ice cream. So he says, all right, I'll go get it. And so he leaves, and she waits like five minutes. She said, is he gone? And I said, yes. And she said, um, okay, I'm going to go now. I said, you're not going anywhere. And she goes, no, no, I'm going to go. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, I'm just going to go. And I thought, what is she saying? And I said, well, you mean go, go? And she goes, yeah. I said, oh, no, you're not going anywhere. So I kept her talking until the guy walked in with the ice cream because she wasn't doing that to me. I was brand new at a hospital, and I'm like, oh, my God, you're not going to die on my watch. You know, you send your husband away, and you're going to – because I didn't realize she didn't want him to be there. And what happened was I found out the next day because I had left shortly after that was that she – he stayed with her for a really long time because I think he knew too. And she passed away like two hours after he left. She didn't want him to be there, but she wanted to spend time with him. And she was taking that. I'm going to go now. And I'm like, what do you mean you're going to go? Don't tell me you're going to yeah. go. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, crazy. I, I, probably he felt, you know, I, I can also see it from his side, how good it was, even if she could only eat a spoonful of it, to give her that yes. last kind gift to, to, not to be yep. deprived of that, you know, that last kind act. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't realize she just was trying to be kind and not have him be there, and I thought, not on my watch, this is not happening, you know. So, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, actually, I thought it was kind of great. You know, I heard it the next day, the nurses were telling me, and I said, well, I think that's that's nice. And they said, yeah, it is. And they said, you're learning. And I said, yeah, well, you know, let's see how that goes, because I wasn't sure I was fit for this, you know. But, boy, you learn a lot. Through all yeah. your research and experience, your personal and with your patients, is there anything about death and dying that you found stood out or you became aware of that perhaps you never thought about before? Something that just kind of like an aha moment type of thing, like, oh, didn't see that coming, didn't know that, or really shed some light on an area? Oh, I, I, I think, you know, there, there have been so much I've learned throughout the field, and I, and I like to think it... Um, I like to think when you when you confront death, um, it, it makes you realize what's what's valuable in life. Um, you know, um, I'll tell you a story about one of my godsons. Uh, 
he was like a second son to me because his father died the day before his uh, fourth birthday. Uh, and um, and so I really literally helped raise him and still very close to him. He's in his 30s now. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the great moments was, uh, not, not, you know, just in our relationship was, um, you know, and it wasn't a great moment in our country, but, you know, I fly a lot. Um, and so on, on 9-11, I had a message from him that said, if you're flying, give me a call. Um, mm-hmm. and then he, a minute later, he gave a message saying, um, Call me no matter what. You know, he realized how silly a message that was. Not silly, but just how strange it might have sounded. Yeah. And when I when I called him up and I, I, I said, you know, I always say, I would always end up each phone call saying, if I, you know, um, if he was still, you know, living, if we weren't together, I'd say, Mission, I love you, kid. You know, and he'd say this. He'd kind of say, getting embarrassed and say like, oh yeah, because he was in high school at this point in time, just starting high school. Mm-hmm. He'd say, yeah, me too. You know, and try to. <laughs> pass off the conversation, yep. you know. Um, and yep. he said, when you were um, on 9-11, I didn't know where you were or, you know, whether you were in danger or not. He said, um, and I all of a sudden realized how important that was, that, you mm-hmm. know, that last message I had from you, the last word I had from you was that, that I love you. Um, yeah. It's still a hard story to tell. And, uh, after yeah. that, whenever I said I love you, he would say it too. Yes, I know. I know. Because we learned from that. Yeah, he, he, I no longer got any yeah. <laughs> Especially guys, you know, especially young guys, they just don't want to. You know, it's like, oh, that's silly, you know. But then, then something happens, yeah. and so that was a moment. That was a pivotal moment for him. A good pivotal moment really taught him I like a lot. This. So I'm sure. Yeah. Yep. Sweet kid. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And 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 you're a great good gladfather so you know there you go we are almost at the top of the hour where we need to to get off air but before we go dr doka would you please tell all our listeners how they may learn more about you your work and where they may purchase your book when we die extraordinary experiences at life's end sure i'd be delighted to um i have a web page called www.com drkendoka.com no no periods no spaces just drkendoka.com so you can find out all the stuff I've written and you, and you can get that and when we die extraordinary experiences at life's end is available through um through any bookstore really if they don't have it I'm sure they'd order it and certainly from amazon.com so so again it's it's you know the nice thing about um with online purchases of different places, it's it's easy to get things. So it's when we die, extraordinary experiences at life's end, um, and and you can get it online. And I'd, I'd love to hear your comments about it. And and thank you so much, T, for having me on tonight. I so much enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you. I did too. I, it's it's a difficult topic, but you know you make it so easy to talk about, and it is comforting. And you can hear that in your voice. You can just hear that you're that type of person. So it's wonderful to speak with you as well. And I want to tell the listeners: look, this book is only, it's less than 200 pages. It is so comforting. It is a good book to get to. You'll learn a lot. You'll laugh. You really will. There were some things in it that I laughed at because I resonated with it. And even if you don't, you'll laugh at it and think, "Wow, okay." You will feel better about the topic and be able to support others at their time of need. So truly, When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End by Dr. Kenneth J. Doka, PhD. So please check that out. 
Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you don't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So please share the knowledge, joy, and love by sending the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they can learn and grow and make the world a better place for everyone as well. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another show here at Energy Awareness Radio. For more information about me and my work or to schedule a remote energy therapy session of your choice, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need. It's 100%. We're run by volunteers. There's no salary, stipends, or compensation of any kind to anyone. So every penny goes toward meals, coats, health care, whatever is needed, so all children have a chance for a good life. At Soji Huggles, we are investing in a brighter tomorrow by giving them a better today. So thank you for taking time to visit our website, SojiHuggles.org. Also, follow us on Twitter, at NRG Aware Radio, and at Soji Huggles. And while you're in your social media accounts, please be sure to like us on Facebook, Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most enjoyable week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.